0: Hello EdSurge listeners and readers. This is Mary Jomata coming to you from the EdSurge office in Burlingame, California. It's been a while since our last episode, but we've got a jam-packed podcast for you today, right after our trip to the InaCole Conference in San Antonio, Texas. Now down south, uh, while we were there, Jim Shelton, the president of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, provided one of the keynotes this past Thursday on the concept of unlocking human potential and promoting equity through transformative personalized learning. Jim's played a number of roles in the edtech space. He was most recently president and chief impact officer of 2U Inc. And before that, he was the deputy secretary of the U.S. Department of Education and the program director for education at the Gates Foundation. So, he's seen a lot and played a lot of different roles. But, in his opinion, is personalized learning the real key to solving equity issues? We'll hear Jim's thoughts a little later. But first, here are the biggest news items from the last few weeks. Welcome to the EdSearch podcast. Let's get started. The folks behind Silicon Valley's first EdTech Accelerator, Imagine K-12, have kept pretty mum since merging with Y Combinator back in February, but this month they posted a common set of expectations to which Y Combinator will hold EdTech companies, particularly student facing curriculum products. The comprehensive checklist covers communicating practices around product information, privacy safeguards, pricing, and pilots. There's no such thing as average. That's a lesson that Harvard professor Todd Rose shared with educators and education entrepreneurs in his keynote at the EINECO conference this week. Rose became well acquainted with the concept after conducting research for his recent book, The End of Average. But why is average a potentially destructive concept, especially in the world of education? According to Rose, it has to do with pacing, standards, and a threat to personalized learning. Dev School's website is typical of many online coding boot camps, but the school is a sham, as Inc. Magazine has uncovered. Operating from Mexico, the school's founder and instructor, Jim O'Kelly, suddenly disappeared last week, along with more than $100,000 of students' money. Now there were some red flags before this. A Dev School student said O'Kelly had a penchant for oversharing personal information and sometimes ripped hits from a colorful glass bong during video lectures with the students. It's safe to say, those flags were real. AltSchool, a San Francisco-based startup backed by $100 million in venture capital, is now focused less on building micro-schools and more on selling its technology. The company has just chosen its first three school partnerships, picked from more than 200 applications for its Alt School Open program. We sat down with COO Cody Johnson to get all the details on Alt School's roadmap and which lucky schools caught his eye. Check EdSurge.com for more. And now it's time for kitchings. <laughs> Spark Schools, which operates a network of primary schools in South Africa, has raised nine million dollars in a Series B round led by the Omidyar Network. Founded in 2012, the company aims to grow from 8 to 20 schools and serve 20,000 students by 2019. Aceable, which offers a mobile app for driver's ed courses, has raised $4 million in a Series A round led by Silverton Partners and Floodgate Ventures. Founded in 2012, Aceable plans to expand its content to cover skills related to real estate, human resources, nursing, and food safety industries. Okay, so does Jim Shelton think that technology is the answer to all of education's problems? Or is it a deterrent? And is there a framework for personalized learning that he feels rises above all the rest? Because there are a lot of frameworks out there. Well, this past Thursday at the iNACOL conference, Shelton answered some of these questions and more. And Ed Surge was there to capture it all in this very special recording. But we'll leave it to him to take it from here.
1: It's good to see everybody. Um, I have to say, it's a, it's a little bit weird, and it really does feel strange. I was, uh, you know, one of the things you worry about being in philanthropy in some form of fashion is just really easy to get a big head. People start treating you different and everything. But it, I don't ever have to really worry about that at IACOL. I was standing at the counter last night waiting to check in, and um, this guy came up, and he right ran right up my shoulder. And I turned around and he said, oh, it's just you. <laughs> I was like, hey, hi, how are you, too? And then I talked to my kids this morning, they gave me two pieces of great advice. My oldest son said, um, uh, don't be boring. <laughs> and my youngest son, it's a, so for those of you who don't know, I'm bi-coastal now, so I'm talking to my sons uh, via conference call every morning, and then uh, FaceTime at night. And my youngest son has started to say things like, and hey, don't use the voice. <laughs> Because when I tell him stories, evidently I like drop into the cerebral mode and sound like an announcer. And then he goes, "And this was brought to you by James Shelter." <laughs> so um, you've already uh, like heard almost everything I wanted to say. I know already at least three times. I heard a ton of stuff that I wanted to talk about from Susan just this morning. Um, by the way, uh, uh, the students that were staying, they they left. I'm always, like, amazed when those big voices come out of those little people. It's just... <laughs> um, and I always worry about getting too serious too fast. then Susan, like, got really, really serious and started talking about trust. Um, I know you heard from Todd Rose yesterday, um, who almost always is mind-blowing because he actually learned science to bear the things that seem intuitive to this crowd in particular. And I know throughout the workshops you've had lots of conversations. Um, I took on this role with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative um, shortly after Mark and Priscilla announced that they were gonna dedicate the vast majority of their resources to unlocking human potential and promoting equality. Um, It just so happens that I gave a talk in 2013 with exactly that title. Um, Matter of fact, this is the front slide um, bring it up from that presentation. Um, and since those are the best slides I've ever made, anyway, I just decided to use them <laughs> again. Slightly different, I've changed the subtitle, but many of you have, may have seen me before. You will have seen some of these slides before, and that's just going to have to be okay. Um, now, the interesting thing about this conversation that we're about to engage in um, is that. Again, I'm going to put a frame around things we already know. Now, I started that last talk with this question. How many of you have met a three-year-old? Frankly, how many of you have met three-year-olds that almost all didn't seem like they were geniuses? Like when you meet kids and you meet, man, three years old, they're just so bright, so inquisitive. It doesn't bother you to wonder where all those geniuses go. They are geniuses when they're three. And somehow, just a little bit later, they don't seem that way anymore. Is that about them? See, I, I... I've spent a bunch of time trying to figure out what to do about this education thing. I've been struggling with this thing for a long time, like many of you. People ask me questions as if I'm supposed to know. And they say, what is the, what's the real problem? What's the real problem? Somebody literally asked me this just yesterday. Said, what's the real problem? And so, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I think the problem is. This. This thing dealt with it. Now, I'm not going to say that we don't have curves. I'm not going to try and argue that with you today. What I am going to say is we have an entire culture and all of our systems built around an idea that some people have it and some people don't. That when that little line says, okay, here's what people are supposed to know, there's some people who are going to be on this side of it and there's some people who are going to be on the other side of it. In fact, our whole system is built around it. All know it doesn't need to be that way, right? We all know that there are a bunch of different studies that have shown it doesn't need to be that way. The one I always refer back to is Bloom's Two Sigma problem. Basically if you give a kid one-to-one tutor, they will outperform. A kid in an average class by about two standard deviations, 50 percentile and 98 percentile. How many times have you heard that one? But the problem is that people don't stop and say, okay, so that means it is not ever the kids. If I can do that with the average kid, given the amount of time and resources that you get with one-to-one tutoring, then it means the kid could always do it. The only question is, how do we create that kind of learning experience for every student? Now the barrier to that has been, where are you gonna find all those people, and how are you gonna get all that money? Great questions, but that's a problem to solve. Not a reason not to acknowledge that it's not about the kids. We can produce these kinds of learning outcomes But our system builds in inequity because of an assumption that it's supposed to be that way. And inequity leads to inequality. Now, these curves that I'm talking about, they most often apply to academic content areas that we think about. But for most of us, when we think about our kids, that's not really enough. Like, I, we all want our kids to do to write well and to speak well and to compute and to get good jobs. But we all have a belief that there's a broader definition of success. We don't want them to just have good jobs and do well academically. We want them to be able to do great things. That if they want to lead, they'll be able to lead. If they want to be able to create, they'll be able to create. We want them to be able to get through tough tasks, tough contexts, and tough times. And know they're going to be okay. We want them to be able to build healthy relationships, whether that's Teams in schools or relationships with friends or families over time. And they use those not only to achieve their individual goals, but their lifelong collective goals that they share with others. And most importantly, we hope that they figure out how to find and then say what they're passionate about and ultimately what their purpose is and know how to go after it. So when we say that we are pursuing equity, it doesn't mean that we are looking for ways to help young people just read, write, and compute better. I'll assert that it means that we want the same things for all children that we want for our own. And I don't know a parent who doesn't want these things for, a kid, for their kids. And while I'm at it, I don't know almost any parents who don't want the very best for their kids, no matter how dysfunctional they may be. So, I'm a recovery consultant, so I cannot get away without having a two-by-two. I have members of my team here uh, who are so sick and tired of seeing this two-by-two. John Dean, who many of you know, who oddly enough, John, can you stand up for a second? He has a session at 11 o'clock. People mistake John and I all the time. That was kind of quick. Um, But here's the deal. The deal is, I've been involved around innovation for a while now, and whenever you do that, you have to have a definition that people use, that you're going to use. And I use this particular one because I think it's really important for our space, because we've got two problems. The first problem is that um, a lot of things that we do, have only incremental impact. When we're trying to make big gains in learning and development, a lot of the things we do don't produce those kind of big gains. And when they do, they don't produce them fast enough to keep up with the new demands of our society. But perhaps most importantly is, even the good things that we do, the things that are great, they take forever to scale. I mean, we're trying to get up to that upper right-hand corner, and we're down on the left-hand side trying to figure out, how do we get things to move? Now, I'm going to be kind of frameworking for a minute, because I know all of you spend are in the work every single day, but I think it's important, as Susan said, for us to think about the broader context when we can figure out how to move this thing. How are we going to get this to all of the kids? Now, the next chart I'm going to show you is really sad, and here's why it's sad because the first time I drew it, it was in 2007. And it hasn't changed very much at all. What it is, is the barriers to accelerated innovation in our sector. Whether it's the research, or the way entrepreneurs and investors in, or our poor design, or the way our procurement works, these things all tend to get in the way. I don't want to linger on those. I mean, we are going to have to create the enabling environment. We have some great news on connectivity. For the first time, down to the Maslow's need of this movement in a lot of different ways of connectivity is getting taken care of. Finally we'll have enough E-rate dollars going for every school to get the connectivity it needs. Plumbing stuff, interoperability. Um, Like, I know we want to get to the important stuff, but having all these systems where we can't make sense of the data and we can't use it, Maslow's needs. Got to happen. By the way, it's not just about technical systems. If we say we want to attend to the needs of a whole child, then our social systems need to connect as well. I'll come back to that. Flexibility. Whether it's the space for competency-based education or the space to try something new. Like our systems need that kind of space for us to run. Where are we going to try and do things that come out very differently. It's very funny, when you look at the charter space, or even when you look at the learning space, or you look at any number of these things, how similar many of them look. And partially that's because the constraints of our system mean that there are boundaries on how far people are able to go. But perhaps the most important part of this is that we have a system where what works best wins. Where when you do something that is really, really effective, that is what is the primary determinant of whether it can go from class to class and school to school and district to district and state to state. Whether funding flows to it more quickly than it flows to other things. Now, people may ask, what has this got to do with innovation and equity? But if that context isn't set, It's hard to get to the main thing, which we all know is about learning. Now, learning, every learner getting the kind of outcomes that we said we aspire to, somehow often gets lost in the conversation when we're talking about innovation when we're talking about change. Our conversations wind up, you know, education is teaching and learning with an overlay of organizational norms and policy and politics. Somehow wind up caught up in that last three things because those things do get in the way of teaching and learning. But fundamentally, getting where we're trying to go, is all about whether we can actually change the practice of learning both for the learner and by changing teaching. Can we empower teachers to do what almost every teacher I know gets in this work to do? Change lives. I mean, I think about this all the time because when you start talking about personalized learning, people get a very specific view of the world, right? For better, for worse, and it's for worse, I will tell you. People outside of this room, when you say personalized learning, they think a kid, a screen, alone. No teacher. That's bad. We have the opportunity to make it very clear that what this is actually about is empowering teachers to do what we ask them to do everything. And, that, and to make people recognize that what we're finally doing is giving teachers the tools that they need to do what they've been asked. I mean, think about what you ask a teacher to do every day. How many people at each table? I think, let's say four or five tables. I need to know what each one of you knows, what you don't know, Not only what you don't know, but what do you misunderstand? What might you be interested in? And I'm going to match that to the perfect instructional approach and content for each one of you. You know what I've got? I've got colored markers. They're really going to help. And yet, magically, many of our teachers figure out how to do this. The average Amazon sales rep knows more about you, service rep knows more about you than the average teacher knows about the students in their classroom. You've heard all this before, but it hasn't changed the way you would talk about it or talk about or even enable personalized learning. And so we have to shift this dialogue and we have to keep the focus on how we're gonna improve both. Now, I think part of that is this conversation about what exactly is personalized learning, especially powerful personalized learning. Because somehow, we have to begin to shift the conversation from the means to the outcome. That in fact, what we're talking about is truly transformative work with students. That it connects to who they are And allows them to change their perspectives and their life trajectories. Life changing stuff. That's good. Um, I've decided that I'm going to not try and create another new framework in my life if I can help it. There's so many good ones out there. Like, I know that there are many, many definitions of personalized learning. Um, I stole this one from Leap Innovations. Who here knows the Leap Innovations, folks? All right, so here's the deal. Um, They have a framework that starts off with Learner Connected. Why do I like that? Uh, because it immediately dispels this notion that somehow personalized learning means you're sitting there in a the room all by yourself, that you're not connected with the real world, that you're not connecting with other people, and that you somehow are isolating. It also talks about being learner-focused. That's about being aware of and attentive to and then accommodating and addressing the needs and desires and interests of the student. That's, The learner gets to demonstrate their mastery of success when they're ready and how it actually suits them best with that kind of flexibility, and perhaps most importantly, that is learner-led, that that student agency gets to play out. And I'm sure Todd talked about it some yesterday, but more and more the science is clear how important that part actually is. I also stole another framework. This is, how many of you have seen the building box framework from Pam Kent? Ooh, okay. All right, did you just not raise your hands or have people really not seen it before? Okay, so here's the deal. It is really difficult to say that you are focused on personalized learning if you're not starting with the status of the learner, if you don't know what the physical, mental, emotional, cognitive state of the learner is, and given all that we know about the interaction of those things with the actual learning experience, how do you say that you are doing personalized learning? Now, that doesn't mean that every single learning experience needs to address each one of those things, but It does mean, collectively, our systems need to make sure that they are accommodating or addressing them and that we are attentive to them as we design and implement learning experiences. Both pieces of this are critically important and in fact, they're not two things, they're one. By the way, this is not new to any of you. It's what you do with your own kids, it's what you do if you teach a class, but it's not baked into how we do our work. And it's definitely not baked into how anybody thinks we think about our work. All right, so much for that stuff. The question is now, how? How are we gonna do this? What's gonna be different this time? And I I actually, I honestly believe it's going to be different this time. Now, anybody who was here when I made cold fit, like, you know, and here, probably thought it was going to happen last time, too. But I do believe it's going to be different this time. Now, here's why, I, I'll tell you why before I start talking about the rest of it. When there were a few computers in the back of the room, one of which was guaranteed to be broken. And I had to load the software up or get somebody in to come and do it and figure out how to reconfigure my classroom in order to get the, you get the idea. It was a perfectly rational decision to say, yeah, not so much. Like the payoff may not be there. Now, the science has come together to talk about what works. The technology has come together for ubiquitous broadband, low-cost, powerful devices, open content, and data that's highly interactive, big data, and analytical tools to help you figure out very quickly what to do with it. I won't even talk about the advances on the user experience and all the tools you can bring to bear there. The ability, actually, to apply tools of technology to solve a problem that seemed almost impossible before is finally within our reach. Now I'm quick to say that the technology is not the answer, but technology does change everything. The thing that we don't talk about most about the importance of technology is that for the first time when students are using technology to learn, you have complete transparency on the process of learning as well as the outcome. So, not only does that mean things about what you can observe about individual students, it means we have an unprecedented platform for learning about learning. We can learn faster about learning than we ever have before. Those questions that were so perplexing we will be able to get answers to because we'll be able to see them very directly and at scale. And we also know about different ways to work because we know that we can't do this in an isolated form as we have. That we're gonna to have to do this work together so we can move at a dramatic pace. At a pace that is staggering relative to anything we've ever seen before. Which means a simple recognition in the work. This is a law that has actually governed Silicon Valley for a while by a guy who was famous at the time, named Bill Joy, which is no matter who you are, the smartest people, most of them, work for someone else. Think about it. The collective wisdom in this room is proof point that no one organization, no one district, no one anything has a market, a corner of the market one like genius. Which means that if we're going to make the most progress that we can, we have to find new ways to think about organizing ourselves to tap into that collective genius. And I would say, having worked across sectors, ours is uniquely bad at. It. Like getting practice to move getting knowledge to move. It's hard. So we're gonna to have to work in new ways. Do you like this one? <laughs> Let me tell you what you like that. So the notion that our educators are supposed to come up with all by themselves what the next generation of tools and resources are that they need. That's just not right. The tacit knowledge of educators on how to educate well, and how to connect with students, all of those things that they understand, no one knows it better. The scientists and researchers can bring to bear the things that we have learned from science and help even improve that insight, going from anecdote to things that are well constructed, well designed, both practices and strategies and ultimately products. But those ideas don't turn into things on their own. You need people who are in the business of design. There's a reason that people like iPhones. You remember those other things, those like, <laughs> yeah. There's a reason. It's not just because they're more functional. It's because they design well. And one of the worst, least used words in our world is easy. Can you make it easier for a teacher and a student to do their very best work? So can we bring these people together? And then there's a bunch of buzzwords in here, don't worry about it. The question is, can we use all those you know, tools that I talked about to really understand how we even have breakthroughs at a pace and a scale that we've never had before. We have no idea how to use all of this new data yet. We have no idea how to use all of the insights we can get from individual students. And we have no idea how to work together that collectively or share data across districts or share data with research centers. But we're gonna to have to figure it out. We'll be able to answer big questions. The science has progressed, as you heard from time yesterday, dramatically. We will know more about how people learn and how to actually apply it in context than ever before. We'll know how their their dispositions and their mindsets actually play into that. We'll know how their individual and environmental context factor into it and what we can do to address it. I spend a lot of time around folks in the military because I've always been fascinated by the fact that they succeed with the people that we fail with. I teach kids, literally, I've said this many times, for a pair of nuclear submarines on the other side of the world who dropped out of high school. And one of the things that I learned from them was that they spent a ton of dollars trying to figure out how you teach people, because we learned about stress. Imagine even teach people while well, literally, literally, the bullets are still flying overhead. There's science here. Pam Cantu, who I referenced before, spent a lot of time, you probably saw in Paul Tuff's book around cortisol and the biological impacts. These are things that we can know, understand, and address. We also can start to solve some of the big problems. We talk about how do people, how do we know? How many of you have been involved in curriculum planning? Right? Um, how, many, how many of you, for, for those of you, did it involve post it notes? Really smart people. So there's a good amount of research basically that says that if you ask an expert, which we all are in certain things like reading or driving, if you ask an expert to explain to you what they do to do it really, really well, if they're really an expert, they will only explain to you about 30% of what they actually do. That in order to really pull out what an expert knows, you have to go through a process to get it really laid out, which doesn't happen sitting around the table trying to organize the post event. So imagine if in any one of these areas we really got great at it, or we really figured out how we get away from our assessment regimes and could build assessments into the learning process and still have a summative point of view. Or any number of these problems that get in our way every day, and we knew how to change things based on whether we were live class, online, in groups, individual, all of those things matter. For whom and in which context. That's what personalization is about, and that, for the first time, is what we're going to be able to do. So, this framework again. It's two by two. The literal how. Right now, what we're doing is we're improving our system, and we're getting better all the time at turning the flywheel. Like, we really are. Um, Our demands of our world are changing much more rapidly than what we seem to be able to do but our system. Is actually getting better. But we have a new opportunity. We have the opportunity when we start addressing those questions and those problems that I talked about to make dramatic progress on the kinds of outcomes we can produce. Whether it is the Navy digital tutoring solution that takes kids who failed out of jumped out of high school and teaches them to be network administrators that are at the top of their of their class competing successfully with people with five to seven years experience. Or it's the physics professor who takes new novice PhD students. It has them teaching physics to students who normally would have been struggling and they outperformed the highest rate of lecturers on campus. Or whether it's the folks in the classrooms who are uh, doing individual tutoring with students and helping them to make six years of progress in two years at a cost of about $4,000. Like, the examples of these kind of breakthroughs and then how we begin to incorporate them into the things that we're doing already will allow us to take real breakthroughs and take them across and take our trend line and move it up dramatically. This seems like so much wishing, but the truth is you're involved in this work today. The question is, are we organizing ourselves, are we building in the tools or resources so we can learn fast, and then share it, and then build on it, and then move. Now, I wanna come back to where we kinda started though. I can't tell you how exciting it is to see how big this room is, because it means actually For every one of you that's here, there are five of you that aren't here. Maybe 10, maybe even 20. challenge is we need millions. And I think that one of the things that we suffer from in education, innovation, and reform, if you will, for a while, is our inattentiveness to bringing everybody along who we think actually needs to be at the party. Just by doing the work, you're gonna do part of it. By definition, as we said, empowering the learners and the teachers is the work of personalizing education. It is the work of addressing equity. It is putting power back in the hands of the folks who are most impacted. If we can't win them, shame on us. This isn't talked about needing to bring back in community, needing to bring in the parents. One of the great things about personalized learning is that I find that for parents when you talk it out, it's visceral for them. It's visceral that everybody learns a little bit different. It's visceral that I want you to understand my child and know how to serve them best. It's visual that I know I didn't actually get that and I know how it made me feel. We've gotta make that connection, not only for them, but for the folks in the community who value school, but also see it as a place that they need to oddly protect, though it still is not meeting the needs of the people they care most about. We also recognize that in our definition, school is not the boundary for learning. And so we need them to engage in order to fulfill the full potential of the kinds of learning experiences our kids can have, to be able to cross those boundaries. How many of you have written to your congressperson this year? Last year? In the last five years? State rep? Can I be state rep? Okay, state rep? okay. it is not your job to write to state reps, do not write for <laughs> Okay, here's my point. I said this a lot when I was in government. Deputy Secretary of Education, nobody on the Hill wants to talk to me, nobody. You, you are a citizen first. You're not even an educator first. You are a citizen first. Your congressman, your state rep, where you live, when you call, somebody's going to talk to you. When you send a note, someone is going to respond to you. When an issue is before them and you care about it, I hate to tell you, most people are like us. They don't call. So if you call, your voice is going to matter. Can I tell you who does call all the time? People who get paid to call. Now, I'm not going to name names, but if you make a lot of money off the way the system works today, then you probably pay a lot of money to keep the system the way it is today. That's not fun. It's just true. We gotta give them the win. And the way you get them, I wish it was through data and evidence, it's through stories. It's through the stories you can tell every single day because of the work that you do about the lives that you change, about the lives that you save, about the communities that can be transformed, about the people who care, When you tell your elected officials those stories and then give them something to hold, which is the data and evidence about what's happening, things will happen. This is not about marches and all of that stuff. It may be at some point. It's just about getting your stories heard. I can't say how important this is. And then finally, like, I know I'm kind of dry. You guys need to find a really great way to excite and inform the general public about the work you're doing. Again, the stories. Children's lives are changing. There is a very different way to do this work. Because of the way I feel about it, I tend to go for... The heartstrings and I get a little bit angry. In the end, though, Tom our subject, he once used to say, social movements need a little bit of anger but also a lot of hope. That things can get better. You guys represent that hope. And when people understand your stories, you'll chase the game. Genius.
0: Thank you so much to Jim Shelton for that keynote. And thank you for tuning in to the EdSurge on Air podcast. Hey listeners, do you have anything in particular you'd like to hear from us? Any individuals you'd like to hear interviewed on this podcast? Let us know. We'd love to hear it. Send us a note at feedback at edsurge.com. And with that, I'm Mary Jomatta. Thank you for stopping by. We'll see you next time. This is the EdSurge Podcast.